so today uh, we begin a, a new uh, year. We really do begin, I always in my head see it as the new year kind of begins, practically speaking, uh, now, when we begin again with Sheet, when we begin again with uh, Genesis, when... Uh, when we're finished with all the holidays and Hebrew school starts and, you know, MSI begins and we're kind of like back into the swing of things. So I hope that the High Holy Day season uh, has been meaningful uh, to you and uh, that it does seem like a new, a new beginning or, or a fresh start. I, I certainly hope so, at least to some degree, obviously, you know, life goes on as it, uh, you know, uh, as it is in all of our lives. We don't actually literally wake up all over again, and now it's like a brand new day. Of course not. But hopefully just in the sense of turning a page, you know, I uh, certainly hope that that is uh, indeed uh, the case. And, you know, if you read the Bible through a year, sometimes it's good to start not in uh, January, uh, but even now. You know, the beginning of Genesis and the Torah readings. And then soon you're going to be hearing about another opportunity to read through the Bible, kind of an interesting challenge for us uh, very soon. So that's all very exciting because our desire is for us all to draw close to God and to grow in Him. But again, it doesn't happen by just sitting back and saying, okay, God, oof. you know, it doesn't work that way, all right? Uh, and so we need to be proactive in our lives, proactive in our walk with the Lord. And primarily, we need to be in the Word of God, right? Uh, when we're in the Word of God, we know the way of the Lord. We know how we are to live. And there is a particular kind of transformation that God engages with our hearts uh, in the Word. Because it's God's Word, and it's not just Word on a printed page, any kind of Word. It's God's Word. So there clearly is something going on when we engage God in His Word, in addition to praying and, and, you know, and serving in varieties of ways. So very good. Well, we are, if you remember, we are still uh, in Genesis. And you know what's going to happen? This is kind of neat. I can't say that I planned it this way, but that we're going to, we're yet in another cycle of reading, so we're beginning in Genesis again. So that by the time we're done, when we get done with Genesis, it should be close to where the weekly reading is uh, in Genesis. So the, the, the weekly reading has caught up to us again. You know, the, uh, the, Torah, the weekly Torah portion has caught up to us again soon. We are all the way in chapter 37, though, not in chapter 1. We're in chapter 37. Chapter 37 is a very important chapter, right? It is the beginning of the Joseph story. The beginning of the Joseph story. Now, if you remember back in one of those messages, I think on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, I mentioned something about the end of the Joseph story, uh, about reconciliation uh, and about how it's depicted in the Bible and in, and in the book of uh, Genesis. And that is a theme here, reconciliation, but, but not just the idea of, of us personally being reconciled to God and not just us being reconciled to one another. It's, it's, uh, there's some interesting um, uh, meaning to how uh, this all plays out when it comes to our calling uh, in, this, uh, in this world. But yet, on the other hand, we don't want to disregard that great truth of reconciliation in our lives. And you, here you have a family, a family that is not uh, seeing things uh, the same way, throughout almost the entire story, and uh, we see that there is reconciliation uh, at the end. And uh, today we'll, we'll, we'll get a glimpse at what that might actually even be referring to. Okay, so, you know, uh, the Torah reading that, that I read this morning, you know, that was from the fifth chapter of uh, Breshit, of Genesis. And uh, if you caught the word toldot, uh, generations, these are the generations of Adam, it's, was the beginning of it, that uh, the whole book of Genesis, really you could look at it as one big genealogy with stories attached to the people in that portion of the genealogy, okay? And uh, because when you think about it, you know, it, it begins with Adam and then, you know, you eventually get to Abraham, Isaac, 
Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob, and then you even have mention of the grandchildren of Jacob. Uh, and at the, end of the, at the end of Genesis, you have the destiny of the 12 tribes. You know, what's going to be with the descendants. So it really is a genealogy uh, bray sheet uh, or the book of Genesis, the, the book of beginnings. And I... Um, Mostly, the genealogy of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 sons of, of Jacob. Uh, and even, it's not our subject here today, but you could even relay uh, the beginning of Adam, you know, the beginning of Adam to Abraham. It's not just, you know, the beginning of mankind, and then you get to Abraham, but it's all, uh, all very much uh, related and related to the story of, of redemption. Now, um, back in August, when we left off, we were in chapter 36, and chapter 36 is the descendants of Esau. It's really like the end of the basic story of Jacob, you know, the Jacob and Esau saga and, and all of it. And it ends with this uh, chapter of the genealogy of Esau. So the genealogy of Esau is interesting because if you go back and you look at chapter 36, uh, in verse, uh, just to cut to the chase here, verse 8. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom, okay? And so then you have descendants of Esau after that. So it tells us where Esau goes and that he's the father of the Edomites. Uh, and that, in a sense, is the end of the story of Esau. We see the Edomites later on in history, but that's kind of like that's where Esau, uh, the story of Esau ends. Now in chapter 37, you have now, uh, you get the idea from the uh, very beginning of the chapter that now we're going to have a list of names. These are the descendants of Jacob. You had in chapter 36, the descendants of Esau, and they end up in Seir, and they are Edom. They are not, clearly, they are not Israel, <laughs> Okay. And now in chapter 37, at the beginning, it says, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. Very important that it says that. Not Seir, not a foreign land, not another place, but in Canaan. Okay. Then it says, These are the records of the generations of Jacob. So that makes sense. Okay, now we're going to hear all of the generations of Jacob. But that's not exactly what happens. We begin now with the story of Joseph. So the story of Joseph is in the context of this genealogy. Of this. It's about the 12 sons as understood in their, in, in their relationship to each other and how their relationship to each other is like a mirror of future history of Israel's relationship with God, uh, Israel's relationship with the nations, the nations' relationship with each other, uh, and all of it. it, it really is a very dynamic story. It's not just about, I better go home and apologize to my sister who I haven't spoken to in a while. Now, you should do that, by the way, <laughs> okay? What I'm saying is, it's just simply that's not the primary message of the story. It's a message of the story, and that's a good thing. But we want to really kind of get what, what's going on here. All right, so it's a genealogy uh, as, uh, in the form of a story. And uh, we know uh, most of this uh, story, a little introduction to it, right? Uh, that the text is now going to follow the destiny of Jacob and his sons from here on out, actually. You know, it's kind of interesting. From Genesis 37 through the rest of the Bible, basically, is now the 12 sons of Jacob. It's no longer, you know, it's not going to be about Ishmael, it's not going to be about Esau, it's about the 12 sons of, of Jacob. And this really now is the formation of this family. It, it's formed. We have the 12 sons, but, uh, but we learn a lot about them, right? It's uh, kind of, uh, it's, it's told differently than all the other stories in, in Genesis, all the other historical accounts in Genesis, right? All the other ones, uh, in all the other ones, really God is the main character in the sense that he is visible and he is moving, and he is speaking to the people all the way through. Now here, God is the main character, but not in any kind of overt way. There are uh, Joseph never builds an altar to God. 
God doesn't speak. You don't hear, thus saith the Lord, or anything like that, okay? And it's filled with all kinds of, all kinds of issues, really, uh, when, you, uh, when, when you think about it. It's filled with sibling rivalry, favoritism, jealousy, misunderstanding, uh, and there's even uh, there's a few other things. I'm just going to mention those, but you know all kinds of um, challenges uh, to Joseph that that you know he's in prison, uh, he's accused of uh, sexual uh, impropriety, all kinds of things take place, you know, in this uh, in this story, and things that are real that take place even in our in our own lives, but there's no wrestling with angels, no direct word from the uh, Lord, no overt breaking in of God uh, onto the scene. Yet we know, we see the godliness throughout, we see the providential activity of God all the way through it, right? So, of course, just like we would say about the book of Esther and elsewhere, uh, we would say God is everywhere in this story, no doubt. But it is interesting that we can relate to Joseph uh, because of the issues that take place in his life. Now, if, if we had never read it before, it would be much more intriguing. But we already know the end of the story, right? So we're, we usually read every page in the light of the end of the story, right? That's not the end of the world either. It's okay. But in order for us to get the most out of it, we have to kind of like put that aside, what happens at the end. And sort of put our feet in Joseph's shoes and in the shoes of his brothers, you know, and, and we really then get a lot out of it that, that we can relate to, okay? Uh, so at the beginning of the story here, no one's on their best behavior, okay? Uh, you could say that even the way it's written, even about Joseph, the text almost goes out of its way to show that Joseph, as well as his brothers, are not uh, relating well to each other. They're not relating well to each other. Now notice, uh, we get a little hint here of what's going on in verse 2, when it says, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Do you ever notice that? You got his brothers... And then you have the sons of Zilpah and the sons of Bilhah. They're all brothers, but it's clear that there are lines of demarcation among them of how they relate to each other. And you get that here, just a little hint of it at the beginning. All right. Now, Joseph, of course, is the firstborn of the love of his life. That is Rachel, right? Okay. Uh, so the first thing we read here about Joseph, uh, and he's the first one we read about in particular, and Joseph brought a bad, back a bad report about them to their father. Okay, so, you know, the inter interesting thing about Joseph is he only has one full brother, right? And that is uh, Benjamin, right? And, and you have all these other brothers who are way ahead of him in the pecking order of how this is, you know, of supremacy, I guess you could say, right? So the first thing we see is Joseph gives a bad report, right? We're supposed to, like, notice that when you read it. Like, aha, something is wrong here, okay? Then uh, it says here, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. He was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic, very colored tunic. The very colored tunic, that's a very interesting, uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about what that represented, uh, and uh, it, it could represent a lot of things, uh, but uh, uh, clearly it, uh, it certainly repre is representative of being uh, singled out, and perhaps even in light of the culture of the time, representing a high social order of some sort, that it wasn't just he got the coat and they didn't, but that it represented something in and of itself, uh, that he's higher or, or more beloved or more special 
than, uh, than all of the other brothers, okay? So, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, I was thinking about this. In my family, uh, without going into all the detail, uh, I have an aunt who is the only child of actually my grandmother and grandfather. It's a long story, but of their, in their particular marriage. And my aunt uh, has always been, she's the youngest, and uh, always very, very special. Now, the good thing is, is that uh, not special in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, sibling rivalry and problems and all that, but it is interesting and perhaps, and maybe you can relate to it in a family where there is the youngest or uh, given uh, fam familial circumstances uh, that there is somebody who is uh, a favorite, maybe because of their youth or something else. And uh, that's just going to happen uh, in families. But clearly in this context, that uh, this was not um, received well by the other brothers and didn't play out uh, well because they really can't stand him. All right? Because it says in verse 4, And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. So, right at the get-go, the point is, is that uh, the brothers of Joseph don't like him. Don't like him. Okay. But then it gets a little worse here. So he has two dreams. And basically his two dreams represent him as reigning over his brothers or his whole family, right? And so they don't like him for that either, right? Okay. Should he have told him? Should he have not told him? That's a nice little Bible discussion, uh, devotional time to have, and that's fine and dandy, all right? But the point of it is, is that there is animosity among the brothers, okay? They don't like him. They don't like him because there's something special about him. Now, I, you know, it's up to uh, you to decide, I suppose, whether uh, Joseph was uh, some kind of spoiled child. We love to read, it's just like, Joseph, uh, just like Jacob, we love to read like 21st century normative relationships into all these, uh, all these passages, you know? And so you just have to be careful on that. The point of the text for us is that uh, Joseph is not liked by his brothers, and here's the reasons why. Now, I will say, uh, again, that yes, it is a good lesson to learn as parents that uh, you don't want to, you know, there's something special about every child you have, that's fine and dandy, and you got to love all your children and, and, and all of that, and so Jacob would not be the parent of the year. Okay, there you go, all right? So we want to get that, it's important, okay? Uh, and I guess, just thinking about it right now, I guess you could say that just like in Jacob's the, uh, uh, situation, though, God was at work in the whole thing. So here, here is a great thing if you're a parent. We all stink, okay? Right? There's no such thing as like great, fantastic, absolutely, uh, you know, over-the-top parents. No matter, no matter who you hear on the radio, okay, uh, or watch on television, Nobody is a, a fantastic parent because we're all, we only get one chance at it, right? We wish we had a second one, right? But we only get one chance at it and we do the best we can, right? With the guidance that we have from the Lord and from our own, perhaps our own family situation of growing up or, uh, or any of it. But hopefully we all do the best we can and we pray for our children and, and so on. But one of the great lessons here is, is that, okay, so, uh, first of all, Jacob was like a single father uh, for a long time, right? He had all these sons. Uh, he had a daughter. Uh, we read lots of mistakes that he made. Lots of mistakes that he made, okay? And even here, clearly, right? The text kind of is, wants us to, to see that, okay, he loved Jacob more than the others, and this breeded discontent um, among all of them, but... God is at work in the whole thing, you, you know? And uh, how important is that to remember? That uh, even though we may make some mistakes and we, and we look at our children and we say, well, I don't know, I, oh, I should have done this differently, I should have done that. You can't do that kind of thing, right? You just say, Lord, 
I did the best I could. And then you see how God uses circumstances and other people and their own, and our kids' own will, by the way, to move forward. And uh, one of the hardest things uh, about that is, is after a certain point, you can no longer control everything, right? And, and so you really have to say, Lord, uh, you know, I'm here. I, I can give advice if asked. If, uh, and I'm here in the cheering session, uh, the cheering section, you know, and Lord, I'm just going to pray. And uh, the story of Joseph is very helpful because it helps us uh, to see that God doesn't just rely on our parenting skills and, and, on our, and, and how our kids respond to it, but that he's involved, you know? You know, when I, be- I don't even know why, I didn't like going off that. I'm okay. Anyway, so, you know, when I became a believer in Yeshua, and to my parents, that was like the worst thing ever, right? Right. Some of you can relate to that, right? It was like the worst thing ever. What did we do? You know, I, and uh, I can remember my mother's uh, talking about like the most obscure things of, oh, were you upset that we did this or that or, you know, and I, it couldn't be just simply... Uh, thinking through something and having the will to say, yes, this is right. You know, it had to be something wrong that they did, uh, right? Uh, and, and so think about that yourself. So I had, that, that's, it helps me because I think about, okay, you know, my parents raised me, but I have a will and I, uh, and, you know, and I uh, make certain decisions in my life. And I would say that uh, my parents had input into the way I am but I make decisions, you know, on my own. And so do our kids. They make their own decisions, right? Uh, whether we like them or not, they make their own decisions. And it isn't all a reflection of the way they were raised or their genealogy or biology or, or any of it. Sometimes it's just between them and God or just the things they do, right? Okay, so here in uh, chapter uh, 37... We're going to see all that, that uh, uh, nobody acts real great in, in this, but we know at the beginning, even at the beginning, that God is involved, even in the issues uh, at, at hand. We don't see it yet, but God is involved. Okay, so Jacob or Joseph, um, he shares the dreams, they can't stand him. All right. So now time goes by and Joseph's brothers are out in the field. He's younger. Right. So he is still evidently with his father, uh, but he, he has to go out and find them and see how they're doing. Right. And so he goes and he and he travels. And uh, it says in verse 18, and can't you just hear them saying this? So it says, when they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They really hate him. I mean, they're plotting to put him to death. But then we're going to see there's a difference that the brothers have a little bit of a different, uh, a different desire here. They're not all on the same page. First we see, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. You can just hear it. Hey, look who's coming, you know? And, and Joseph here is... Um, doesn't realize uh, what's happening to him. Okay. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. They should add, ha, 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 Right? And so they want, uh, they want to kill him and they're going to throw him into basically a cistern, an empty cistern. Okay. Now, Reuben... Interesting. Reuben is the firstborn son of Leah, uh, who has been uh, disqualified uh, because of sexual relations with uh, one of his father's wives, right? Bilhah. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben seemingly wants to save Joseph. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, 
but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of his hands to restore him to his father. Now, what's interesting about that is it's probably not because Reuben is such a great guy, but probably because he is trying to restore his prominence in Jacob's eyes because he's been, he's been knocked down, see? But now, seemingly, Reuben is doing a good thing. So then it says here, So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. They sat down for a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah, Judah now, says to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? So now Judah is thinking he's going to die. He's, you know, we put him in the pit to die. Okay. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother and our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. Now, perhaps what, Ju- what Judah is thinking is that Joseph is the favored son. Now, if, I, if we can get rid of Joseph, uh, then, because if you think about it, uh, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi have already done their thing that disqualifies them from being the father of the, of the king of Israel, we'll say, okay? And Judah is next in line. But Joseph is the beloved son. And so uh, there's a lot of intrigue going on among these brothers as to why they act the way, they, the way that they do. And then it says, Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph down to Egypt. Okay. Now Reuben returns, and he's gone, right? And so he grieves, he tears his garment, by the way. He's grieving. He's grieving. Okay, maybe he thinks, you know, you know who's going to be blamed for this? You know, me, the firstborn, again, right? Okay. So he says, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? Like, this is going to be the enemy. So we see what they do. We, you know, they all have some different knowledge of what's taken place. It's kind of interesting, right? So what do they do? They kill a goat. They dip it in. They bring the coat back to Jacob. Uh, can you imagine doing this to your father? You, you know, uh, and they tell him that Joseph, you know, we found his coat. It's got blood on it. There you go. It's the end of Joseph. And then Jacob grieves horribly. And so it's a very sad situation among the brothers and, and just among this family. It says in verse 34, So Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. Then all of his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be the comforting him. They know. Oh, wow. Uh, but, they, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Okay. So even now, we know some things. We know if you go back to uh, the calling of Abraham, right? You have the statement, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And then you have uh, the statement in chapter 15, interestingly enough, where we read there that Abraham's descendants would go down to Egypt for 400 years and they, then they would return. Okay? What we're learning here is how through sin, through problems, through bad relationships, God is bringing to pass what he's going to do. And he uses these sons who are no uh, stellar uh, examples of virtue uh, to bring it to pass. And that will even become more clear in the next chapter. 
you know, about, uh, about, these, uh, about these sons. Uh, so there's a lot to learn uh, from this in the sense that we could say, first, regardless of uh, when we look back on our own lives, that regardless of what has taken place, nobody's on the shelf, you know, that God is at work in our lives, even in pain, God is at work. Even in difficulty, even in, you know, uh, difficult relationships of whatever they may be, God is at work. And that we should never feel, well, I'm disqualified because this is what happened when I was growing up. But no, God is at work. And in, in ways that we cannot understand, in ways that we cannot understand, God forms us into the men and women that we are in the Lord th even through those circumstances. You know, and uh, it's interesting because uh, in the if you go to uh, the book of Deuteronomy for a minute, in the 29th chapter, Deuteronomy 29, this is where uh, they're on the plains of Moab and, and Moses basically says, you know, I've been with you for 40 years and God has not given you eyes to see, ears to hear or a heart of understanding. And so I know that when you enter the land, you're going to mess up in a big way. You're going to forget about God. You're going to build idols. And you know what's going to happen? God is going to bring these horrible people into the land. And you're going to have to leave the land. You're going to be scattered all over the earth. And it's going to be really horrible. Okay? And I'm telling you this so you know, so you know that uh, I have not uh, abandoned you when this happens. You know? But no, this is, this is what will happen when you disobey God. And then you have a little verse. And it's the last verse of uh, Deuteronomy 29, okay? This is, this is one of those verses where you've heard it, but you may not remember where it is. It says there, The secret things belong to the Lord, the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons or our children forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Now, if you, know, if you go back to the, uh, the verse before it, and it says, And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is this day. And then it says, The secret things belong to the Lord. So, anticipating, people will ask, Well, why did that have to happen? Or why did that have to happen to me? Or why did it, you know, there's a lot of people, there's millions of people. Uh, some uh, fared better than others. Why did that have to happen to me? Why did that happen, have to happen to us? And so he says, The secret things belong to the Lord. But we know what we're called to do, and we know how we're called, indeed, to live, okay? So after that little verse, then you have chapter 30, where he talks about, then you're going to return, and I'm going to circumcise your heart, and, uh, and the heart of your descendants, and you'll live in the land, and, uh, you know, and I'll destroy your enemies, and, and, and all of that. But the, point, the, the only point I want to make is, when you look at the history of Israel, it does play out this way. That uh, you know, lots of um, lots of persecution, lots of problems, lots of issues, uh, and when you look at it from the point of view of the coming of the Messiah, it's very interesting that um, you have, uh, for example, in the New Covenant, in the Book of Acts, in the third chapter, beginning in verse eleven. Okay, verse twelve. Okay, verse twelve. Uh, but when Peter heard this, he replied to the people. Now he's going to give a speech. Okay. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? It had to be, a, it was a healing that happened. Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety uh, we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Yeshua, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact of which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Yeshua, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, uh, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, uh, just as your rulers did also. But the, thing which, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, 
that his Messiah should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Uh, I think I'll just stop there. So the, the, the point is, is that here you have the righteous one, uh, the Messiah, misunderstood by his family, misunderstood by his brethren, right? Uh, and not exactly sold to Egypt, but actually killed, right? So the, uh, we might uh, look at the, uh, the story horizontally and say, oh, look at how they, uh, they disobeyed God and, and, uh, and, and look what happened to, to, to Yeshua. But acting in ignorance and acting in sin, God was using this entire historical event to bring to pass the coming of the Messiah, the death and resurrection of the Messiah in real time uh, with, with real people. We might ask the question, well, why those why at that year and why those people? Oh, the secret things belong to God. I don't know the answer to that question, okay? But I do see, we should see here that Israel is still the chosen people. The tw- you know, the sons of, Joseph, of uh, Jacob are still the sons of Israel, filled with the destiny of, you know, of all that Israel is called to be. Yet among themselves, there was, uh, there was sin, there was uh, uh, you know, a violation of what God desired. And then when you turn to uh, another passage in Romans chapter 11, that's the best of all, right? So here in uh, chapter 11, in verse 11, it says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, to make them jealous. we got to slow down and say that again. By their sin of unbelief, salvation has come to the nations. Because of their rejection, the message of Yeshua goes to the nations. All right? Uh, and then it says, of course, uh, to make them jealous. Now, you know, if I was going to have this plan, there certainly had to be a, a different kind of way for the nations to hear the gospel than for Israel as a people to reject the Messiah because it has resulted in tremendous anguish for the Jewish people. Then it says in verse 12, Now of their transgression be riches for the world, he says to me, if their transgression, you know, he doesn't say their poor choice. Okay, he says, now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure, failure, be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Okay, so I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles and as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Uh, If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen and save some of them for of their rejection. This is like the third time he's saying it for of their rejection. Be the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Okay. And so this is a mirror, may I suggest, of the story of Joseph. That God is bringing about his will through the difficulties of Joseph, the sin of his, uh, and the sin of his brethren. Okay. Now, farther on down in the chapter, you read in verse 28, From the standpoint, this is strong language, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Okay, do you understand? From the standpoint of the good, he's saying the same thing using different words again. From the standpoint of the gospel, of the gospel meaning the story of the gospel, the story of the good news, they are enemies for your sake, speaking to Gentiles. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved because of the covenant that God has with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Okay? When it talks about the gifts and the calling of God being irrevocable, he's talking about one thing. He's talking about the calling of Israel. Okay? And now, actually, if you go back to uh, verse 25, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. 
So that a partial hardening has happened to Israel for the sake of the nations. Jewish people rejected the gospel as part of the plan of God, while everyone is, is all personally responsible. The secret things belong to God. And you know, you know how Paul ends this chapter? It's almost like he throws up his arms. <laughs> and he says, oh, the depth of the riches. See verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. The secret things belong to God. Who can figure this out? But the fact uh, remains that, that God is involved even in the rejection of the Messiah. God is involved. I don't understand exactly all that that means. Because I do know that we're all personally responsible to come to know the Messiah, you know, uh, uh, to have our sins forgiven. But yet at the same time, in the corporate, in the big picture, Israel suffers for the sake of the nations. Very interesting, isn't it? Uh, and Joseph suffers for the sake of the nation. Yeshua suffered for the sake of the nation. God is involved in all of it. You know, God is sovereign. But there's personal responsibility in all that we do. Yes, the secret things belong to God. Oh, who can, under, who can understand his ways, right? But that's why he's the king. If we could understand all his ways, we would have them all figured out. And then he would be a creation of ours, you know? And that's what it means to, you know, we live by faith. We live by our trust in the Lord. And, and these things are true. But there's something even bigger to take away with this. And that is... That when we look in our world today and we see chaos uh, among nations uh, and, and all the, the potential destruction that could take place, and when we see that things don't seem to make sense you know, in our world, uh, that I don't understand it, but God's hand is on it. And I know what I'm called to do. I know uh, the secret things belong to God, but I know what he wants from me, to walk on the way of the Lord, to walk in righteousness. And that may be true for us as individuals when we look at our own lives, that, you know, uh, the hand I've been dealt has been not good, we might say. God is involved. That is, uh, that is all about trusting in the Lord. And, you know, um, Habakkuk uh, uh, comes to mind uh, in this. Habakkuk comes to mind in this. When you think about the story of Joseph, when you think about the story of Israel, when you think about Israel and the nations, when you think about the nations and the nations, in the book of the little tiny book of Habakkuk, which is really a piece of wisdom literature, as we'll find out when you all take this class starting on Monday night, that uh, just very quickly, so Habakkuk is angry at God at the beginning. He's very angry. How long, O oh Lord? And I get in my head like he's, his fist is in the air. How long, O oh Lord? When are you going to do something? When are you going to get revenge on the enemies? Why do you let sin run rampant among Israel? It's just like how we might even pray today. When are you going to do something? There's so much wrong, injustice, violence, bad things all over the place. When are you going to like step in and do something? Right? And then God says, I'm going to do something. You're not going to believe what I'm going to do. But I'm going to do something. I'm actually going to take the enemy because I'm sovereign over everything. And I will use your enemy to bring judgment on Israel. Okay? And then Habakkuk says, you can't do that. That is, in my, when I went to Bible school and I took a class on systematic theology, that doesn't fit in. Okay? That does not fit in. And God says, no, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm sovereign over everything. He used, he used the brothers of Joseph. He used Reuben. He used Judah. He used Pharaoh. He used Assyria. Right? He used Babylon. All, all of it. Right? Okay. So then, now Habakkuk sort of reflects on this. And he says, I think I have stepped over the line. And so in the second chapter, he says this. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. In other words, I think he's going to yell at me. 
I think he's going to be angry with me, and so I'm going to like hang on for dear life here. Then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision, inscribe it on the tablets, that the one who reads it may run. So he, sa- he gives him an answer, and he says, write it down and take it everywhere. And then he says this, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, and it will, uh, and it will not delay. He sa- so what he's saying here essentially is, I'm telling you what the answer is going to be, but it isn't going to happen when you think it's going to happen. you got to wait. It's coming, but from your point of view, it's going to seem like it's taken forever, but it will not fail. Wait for it. It will come. And then he says this. In plain English, it's, in the meantime, this is what I want you to do. Okay? In verse 4, Behold, for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. In other words, it's going to happen, and, you're, and there's going to be sin. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by his faith or faithfulness. So he's basically saying here, those who live in the covenant, covenant relationship, who live by faith, who trust me, are going to live faithfully. You wait for it, but those who are righteous will live by this faithfulness and you'll wait, you'll live, you'll live. And it's in a way kind of like Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but he's told us what we're supposed to do. And you know, I, I will suggest that in the book of Romans, Paul, when he says, like, the just shall live by faith, this is a big thing, but I'm just going to say, I'm going to throw this out and go, whoa, he did. And that is that basically we can look at that as Yeshua is returning, but we don't know when. We don't know exactly when the consummation of everything is going to be, but we know what we're supposed to do in the meantime. And we know how we're supposed to live, you know? Uh, And so no matter where we are in life, uh, no matter what has happened to us or is happening to us, recognize this, God is at work. And we may not understand why things have happened or why they are the way they are, but God calls us to walk with him to serve him, to uh, walk in the way of the, of the Lord, to walk in faithfulness uh, 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 to God. And that is depicted in exactly how Joseph, how the story of Joseph plays out with all the misunderstandings and accusations and, and so on. Uh, and the end result, what is the end result? What is the end game? Of course we know what it is. The end result is reconciliation. The end result at the end of the story is you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, right? Uh, and so as we walk through the story of Joseph, uh, let us you know, try to keep our feet in his shoes and uh, uh, I suppose in the shoes of the brothers as well, depending on our own story, and recognize that life is filled with issues and challenges and difficulties, but God sees us through them when we trust him, when we walk with him. And we may not know the big why question, but we know what God has called us to be and what God has called us uh, to do. Sometimes we suffer for the sake of others. Sometimes the story is not about us in particular. Like the Joseph story was not really about him. It's about getting the entire uh, family down to Egypt. And that, and that this was the gateway to them flourishing in Egypt and growing into a, a, a tremendous nation and being enslaved and then being redeemed by Moses. Joseph was uh, participating in the plan of God. See, doesn't this fly in the face a little bit of, you know, if you come to know the Lord, God has a wonderful plan for your life. It kind of flies in the face of that a little bit because that's not exactly what, this, what the story is. God has a wonderful plan for this world and we get to be part of it. That's what's true. God is in the process of redeeming the world. And when we're connected to the Lord, we, we get to be a part of it. It may mean suffering. It may mean suffering unjustly and responding well. Uh, you know, it may mean leading uh, hundreds of people to faith in Messiah. Uh, you know, it may mean writing books and affecting people everywhere. Uh, you know, it may mean being a singer. 
It may mean being a teacher. It may mean being an accountant or a doctor and doing well and, and testifying uh, about the greatness of God. It can mean anything because we all have a different story, don't we? We all have a different story. So the, so the way God works in our lives is wherever our story is at. And so uh, when we look at the life of Joseph, it's reflective of the life of Israel, uh, the life of the nations, the life of humanity, right? But the great news is the end goal, the end result is reconciliation and reconciliation of this world. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, we, uh, uh, we thank you, God, that there's so much in this uh, story of Joseph. Lord, uh, I pray that, um, uh, you know, when, when we read, Lord, when we read the scriptures, we might, we might be able to read that, that people like Paul said, what, you know, I can be content if I have little or if I have a lot. Or he can talk about his uh, difficulties, but that, how they didn't defeat him. Lord, and I pray, God, for us that, that we might uh, recognize that you are indeed at work in our lives. When, when we receive the Messiah into our lives, we have an assurance of that. We have an assurance that we are walking in the way that you have called us. You are our king. Our destiny is in you forever. And you've given us a way of life and, a, and a, an opportunity to make a difference in this dying world, uh, Lord. And I pray, God, uh, for us, especially, you know, if we have come through very difficult circumstances and we just wonder why, 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 Lord, I pray that we would turn and not, not look backwards but forwards and say, okay, this is my story, and now I'm going to walk forward with this story, and I'm going to make a difference in, in this world because, Lord, you are guiding me. You have given me your Ruach, your Holy Spirit, to guide me and direct me into, uh, and to flourish wherever I am uh, a God and bring healing to, uh, to my life. But, Lord, that I can make a difference in, other, in another person's life in this world, just as Joseph suffered tremendously by himself in another land, but yet he saw there was a vision. He had a vision for what you had called him to be and called him to do. We thank you, Lord, uh, for this great truth, and we pray in Messiah's name.